It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are our transfer market insiders and pundits extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, uber-talented AEAC youngsters Frankie de Jong and Matthias De Ligt are attracting huge interest from some of the biggest teams in Europe after helping Holland into the semi-finals of the Nations League. We assess their potential for January moves and ask where they will be likely to end up. We take you inside Manchester United's search for a director of football and talk about Jose Mourinho's preferred candidate, Luis Campos. The former Monaco man appears to have the perfect CV for the role, so why isn't he being seriously considered by the Old Trafford hierarchy? And more murky revelations and leaks about the business of football continue to cast light on the dark side of the beautiful game. We explain what's happening and how it could come to effect some of the biggest clubs in Europe. Okay guys, well we're going to start out with the fallout from the Netherlands' 2-2 draw with Germany last night. It meant that the Dutch were to top their Nations League group and progress to the semi-finals, while the Germans were relegated. And of course, two of the best performers throughout that game were the Ajax youngsters Frenkie de Jong and Matthias de Ligt. Now, these guys are attracting interest from some of the biggest clubs in Europe. Duncan, does this represent a bold new dawn for Dutch football. I think it's it, it's an important current generation of of uh, Dutch talent. I think if you if you go and look past the last decade um, of transfers into the Premier League, you'll see almost every year um, Ajax, in particular, sometimes um, PSV, have been selling one of the the country's top players to the Premier League, and uh, and actually the majority of those sales have have, have been. Uh, very productive for the clubs um, who bought them. You know, examples like Luis Suarez, um, who turned into the best player in the Premier League and now one of the, the top players in the world after moving from Ajax to um, to Liverpool. Um, you've got Toby Alderweireld, um, Jan Vertonghen. Um, less successful, someone like Daley Blind, um, Memphis Depay. Although Depay now uh, seems to have sorted his personal life out and, it, and is, has re-established himself as a, as a top talent. But for sure, um, on the current marketplace, De Jong and De Ligt are of huge interest to essentially all the top clubs in Europe. Um, Ajax are very pragmatic about uh, the way they survive as a club. They invest a huge amount in youth development. Um, there's an argument that they are the best club in Europe terms of bringing through technically capable footballers but they're aware that to cover that investment um, they need to sell uh, their star players on a regular basis uh, and they very much strategize that way. I, I um, First time I went to Ajax um, training ground was to interview Luis Suarez before he um, moved to Liverpool and uh, I was astonished by how 
helpful IX were in facilitating that interview and how um, rational they were in, in that interview as being part of, for them, the marketing process of Luis Suarez. You know, the, the, the player and his agent were keen to have his name and his story told in England. And, uh, and the club were also keen because they, they, they calculated that doing that would help them sell the player um, and increase the transfer fee. And, and they, that's a general approach. The fees they're asking are getting higher and higher. Um, I talked to someone at Ajax um, last week about De Jong and De Ligt, and he said, yeah, we understand these players are going to leave. Um, I think actually Mark Overmars uh, talked to a shareholders meeting uh, in the last few days and said, well, we managed to retain them for this season, but we're not going to retain them forever. We know we're going to have to sell them. But my contact at Ajax was saying the fees will be very high. Um, but even the fees we managed to take for them, the, play, the clubs that get them will be getting a bargain um, because they are uh, so good. Um, we've seen De Jong uh, linked strongly with Manchester City um, as one of the, the midfielders they want to bring in, um, you know, in that long-standing search for a backup uh, stroke replacement for Fernandinho. Um, that's correct. Manchester City are um, strongly interested in the player and Ajax are, are well aware of that. Um, De Ligt has been linked with, with most of the top English clubs, but is, I'm told, closer to Barcelona than, than any of them. And interestingly, my um, briefing from um, a contact at Ajax was that both players would prefer to move to Spain than to England. So um, whether City managed to get De Jong may well be about them being able to surpass the transfer fee on offer from, for example, uh, Real Madrid or Barcelona, who are also in the market for a midfielder of, of his type, um, rather than having that player's preference um, being to, to come and play for them. Um, but yeah, absolutely key figures to watch um, and see whether any of these top clubs can get them in January, as um, City would like to do, um, or whether they're going to have to wait till the summer and, um, and just how high the, the prices will go for them. And of course, Duncan, there's a special caveat that comes with uh, De Ligt, which is of, uh, Mino Raiola, his agent. Um, and as we know, uh, Mino's services do not come cheap. So, and also he does seem to have um, a sort of interestingly, um, let's just say very influential um, hold over his clients with regards to where they end up. Um, and sometimes you can relate the amount of money that Mino has paid to where they end up rather than uh, necessarily being where the player wanted to go. Um, so it will be very interesting, I think, especially in the January window when certain clubs are definitely to strengthen. Um, I uh, had the privilege of recently visiting Ajax's training ground and, um, and watching them train and also uh, speaking to some of the people there. There's no doubt that both De Ligt and De Jong are incredibly highly rated by Ajax, and I agree with you about the fees. What I would say is that um, traditionally, the, the, the fees paid to Dutch clubs are probably around approximately between 15 and 20% less than those being paid to, let's say, for instance, clubs in France or Spain for incoming players to the Premier League. Uh, so the idea that you're getting a bargain, um, if you're looking at a 20% reduction on a fee of around 50, 60 million, then you are getting a bargain. 
Uh, and that kind of money has proven to be enough to keep Ajax in very good financial health for the last 20, 20 years, basically. They've not won the Champions League since 1995, as I remember, um, and that team was immediately broken up. And that was likes of Cliver, um, uh, etc., who then went on to, to perform other major European clubs. So Ajax is becoming, <clears throat> I think, a Renaissance feeder club, not feeder club, that's, that was wrong, a, a breeding ground for an exceptional uh, talent, technical footballers, once again. But what we've seen, uh, at least in the last two transfer windows, with the likes of Davy Klassen's move to Everton, <clears throat> even Davy Proper to Brighton, um, Jürgen Lokadia, again, from PSV to Brighton, the same as, as uh, Proper came from as well, is that these players are available for around £17, £18 million. Pounds. Now, De Ligt and De Jong definitely do not come into that price range. I think there'll be probably upwards of £40 million pounds in terms of their moves. But you're buying developing talent. You're buying sell-on talent. It's not necessarily... Um, <clears throat> it's not going to be the case that you, you know, will have to invest in that player and make a loss. So... I was told uh, that Manchester United were interested in De Ligt and we know that Jose Mourinho is looking for centre-half. Um, however, at 19, despite what he's shown this season, both for Ajax and the Dutch national team, in terms of his maturity and ability to play at a certain level, I don't think we can yet say he is at the level of you know Champions League semi-finals type thing. <clears throat> but, you know, he is certainly someone who can play and who will develop. I'm just not sure that um, the opinion of Mourinho and Stroke Edward would both coincide. Um, as we've seen in the last six to 12 months, Mourinho has repeatedly requested uh, for a more experienced player who can hit the ground running in the Premier League. In fact, even better if he's played in the Premier League, like Toby Alderweireld, obviously, um, rather than someone like De Ligt, who is coming in from the Eredivisie, where the, the standard is not the same, the intensity is not the same, um, despite the fact that um, he is a, you know, an emerging talent. But obviously United have gone down that route already uh, with Lindelof and it's not proven to be uh, a su successful one as yet. And I don't think Mourinho has enough time to accept, if you like, a gift of a young, talented player. I think he needs someone different to that. doesn't mean to say there won't be interest from other clubs, though. <clears throat> when a player like Andy Young come on the market, I think top six in England will always be players because they will pay more money in wages um, than most clubs outside of Barcelona and Real Madrid. And it's up to, I guess, the player and, as I already mentioned, the agents to decide if that's the right move. Yeah, I think um, De Ligt's definitely on Manchester United's list. Um, he's on the scouts' list and he's on Mourinho's list. And I, as you identify, the problem for Mourinho is he has to. He needs a defender who can go straight in and lead a defence that has been the biggest problem he's had in, in the team for his three seasons at the club. And the lift, uh, the expectation you would place on a 19-year-old leaving his home country for the first time to take on that role is almost certainly a recipe for disaster. Um, you have to be some player at 19 years of age to move to a new country and, and become the leader of um, a, a defence like Manchester United, which is already weak. Um, so he'd probably be ideal 
in if they were able to sign two centre backs, for example, one, um, you know, Kulabali, who is who's high on on Mourinho's list of a of a ready-made player, um, and then De Ligt as a as a guy to develop alongside them. But then they've got two centre backs who are development centre backs at the moment, Lindelof and Bailly, and and we've seen the problems they've had developing because of the the expectation placed upon them. So it, it's there is a conflict there in that United as a club um, want to move towards signing these younger players. Um, they, they talk about resale value being important to them, which is bizarre given that it's Manchester United and, and Manchester United have never thought about reselling players in the future. But that, but that is something Edward Wood is conscious of, the, the transfer fees you can get for players when they leave. Um, and the idea of signing a young player who turns into a top talent is appealing to him. But Mourinho's calculation is that that's not what the club needs at present. And and I, I think he's right. And I think also United have to be savvy about this. Um, why is Mino Raiola um, offering the lick to Manchester United when he knows the player's preferences to go to Spain, when he knows if, for example, he moved to Barcelona, that would probably be a far better place for the lick to to develop as he wouldn't be expected to go straight into the lineup as he'd be playing alongside someone like Gerard Piquet or, or Samuel Antiti who who have the experience and, and that those leadership skills so he could he could develop his career in a less exposed manner. Why is he talking to Manchester United? Because if he gets an offer from Manchester United of a high salary, he can take that to Barcelona and say, right, this is the this is the benchmark. Um, if you want my player you've got to match that or better it. Um, and it, you know it's a standard agents tactic, and United have got to be aware that that's um, that that um, Raiola isn't coming to them because he thinks that's the best option and the only option for for his uh, client at present. In terms of the way Manchester United or, are organised, Duncan, is this the kind of uh, talent you would expect um, their scouting department to be? having lined up with a director of football in place who can identify these kind of issues where you're going to be looking at a, a development centre half as opposed to someone like Koulibaly, who's a ready-made target. You wrote a, a column in the Daily Record at the weekend talking about Luis Campos um, as a potential, a guy who was at Monaco and did extremely well, developing a lot of excellent talents alongside some more experienced players as well. Well, look... As we've talked about in the transfer window um, several times, uh, the director of football role is a very appealing solution, um, certainly to Manchester United fans, but it's also been something that's been briefed by the board as, as a position they are looking to recruit in. And it started getting briefed aggressively after the disaster of the last transfer window. Um, Mourinho is obviously cautious about having a director of football brought in above his head, who would have the authority to sign players um, again above his head and who might uh, recruit players that he doesn't want. He doesn't want to be working with someone he doesn't trust um, in that position. He's not against um, the idea of a director of football in principle. In fact, he thinks it could be helpful to have an ally in the camp or at least someone to take some of the heavy loading a heavy load away um, in terms of the search for players, in terms of recommending players to the board, in terms of arguing with the board that this particular signing, for example, Koulibaly, is the right one at this particular moment. 
And you know, I, I think it should be noted here that, that Mourinho lost um, his assistant coach um, Rui Faria in the summer, and and the number of, of trusted individuals who he's worked with uh, for a long period of his career has reduced, and that that's made his job more difficult at United. But his proposition, and he's talked to Woodward about this, is um, if it's a, a director of football, it has to be someone that I approve of and I'm comfortable working with. And Luis Campos is a clear candidate there because uh, Mourinho hired Campos um, as, a, as a technical and tactical um, and, and also a, a scout to, to look for players at Real Madrid and was pleased with his work there. Um, Campus then went on to Monaco, as you say, and was uh, responsible for constructing that team that went to the semi-finals of the Champions League and, and has raised more money in transfer revenue than any club in the history of the game. Um, responsible for, for players like Kylian Mbappe, um, Bernardo Silva, a very long list of, of top talents. And then and for the last uh, two seasons, has been at Lille, where he's... Um, rapidly managed to build a team that, that has got to second um, place in, in Ligue 1 with a similar kind of strategy of, of taking players in their you know, the, the late teens or early 20s who are just ready to develop into top talents in the league, putting them in the right environment, building the right team structure around them, watching that development process happen with the idea that you um, sell them on for a profit and, and reinvest that money in, uh, in the next set of talents. So he's an obvious solution, um, but although that name, I understand, has been proposed to Woodward, there has been no contact from the club to campus, which makes you um, ask a question about what Manchester United's um, goal is here. Because if the, if the director of football is important to them, and if they are 100% behind Josie Mourinho as, as they've, they've tried to um, intimate during this you know period of of um recent troubles um then that would seem an obvious um appointment to try and make uh because then you have uh, you reinforce and strengthen your manager you give them backing and you you get a top um technical director from the european game in to work for you rather than other clubs but nothing's happened so that to me suggests that united are waiting to see what happens with Mourinho. They are waiting to see, as we've discussed um, several times on this podcast, um, whether they qualify for the Champions League um, and whether they need to change manager um, either during the season or more likely at the end of the season. If they do so, um, were they to take, for example, Mauricio Pochettino, who is um, well accustomed to working in a, in a technical director, uh, coach, um, dual structure, then they hire um, a director of football that fits the, the, with the, the new coach rather than the current coach. So, again, I think it's more evidence of the, of the tensions within United and the, and the uncertainty around the club and, and the difficulties they're going to have going into a transfer market where the manager is asking for certain things for obvious reasons and the club uh, wants to go down a different route for um, their strategic reasons, which... Um, haven't always proven to be the most successful since um, since Woodward became uh, executive vice chairman of the club. Certainly, in conversations I've been involved in in, in clubs with regards to appointment of senior um, executive roles, specifically uh, a technical director, a director of football, um, I've never once um, heard uh, a CEO or a chairman of a club 
tell me that they wanted to appoint someone who the manager approved of because part of the point of, a, of, of making that kind of decision whereby you put in place what effectively is a liaison or buffer or conciliary, whatever you want to call it, between the board of directors and the, the money guys at a club and the football department is that you have an objective point of view when it comes to recruitment and indeed the level of investment which goes on in terms of recruitment. Uh, and clubs themselves want that security of knowing that the person that they've appointed uh, as that buffer is objective in his view and in his um, manner of thinking regarding um, the recruitment of players and sale of players. You don't want um, this, you want you don't want someone who basically is going to do the will of the manager because effectively you as well not having a technical director or director of football because the manager's still pulling the strings. So I think Duncan's right. The fact there's been no contact with Luis Campo suggest still tells you everything. It's not going to be him. He's currently at Lille. Uh, if you want, if Manchester United wanted him, he could be there tomorrow. Simple as that, and that's not going to happen. I think what is certainly will happen is that. This season will be played out and it's unlikely um, that United will appoint anyone into that role until they've decided in the future of Jose Mourinho, um, whose position is still under question, under scrutiny, continue um, to be monitored until such time that um, there may well be a change in the head coach's position. Now, should United choose to appoint a technical director who is not approved by Mourinho, then you can be very sure that that technical director of football, whatever you want to call him, will have a, a, a role and a say in who the next, next manager is. But at the same time, it doesn't mean to say he will be directly aligned with that person um, when it comes to spending the club's money on players. So it's a, it's a, it's a complex situation, one which works at some clubs, one which has failed to work a lot of clubs as well. Um, it's, a, it's a model which is certainly more easily um, accepted and um, more cohesive in its uh, the way it works in, in European clubs rather than in clubs in England. And it's interesting that recently a club like Southampton, who have been successful in terms of buying players and selling for huge profits, mainly to Liverpool, um, sacked their technical director, Les Reid, um, because uh, results were going badly and didn't want to sack Mark Hughes, their coach. So sometimes you know, it works for you, sometimes it doesn't. But um, in the case of Manchester United, it would be a very, very major appointment. And I think, as I said, it won't be some someone who's necessarily um, related or indeed has worked with Mourinho before. Um, and, and for that reason, I don't think we'll see anything happening very soon. With regards to um, January's window um, and how that works out then, just going back to our previous conversation with regards to centre-halves, um, I'm told that Mourinho's got a list and Ed Woodward has his own ideas and so I think we're in for some more friction uh, with regards to what happens and what doesn't happen in January. Ian, why is Ed Woodward the only man who follows football who seems to not recognise recognise that Manchester United need a centre-half. Even people that don't like Jose Mourinho acknowledge that he needs a centre-half, an experienced one, not a 19-year-old kid. I think he recognises it, Johnny. I just think he what 
his job is to look after the Glazers' investment. And so what he doesn't want to do is is spend a hell of a lot of money um, on a player who sees no resale value or, or no forward investment in because it's his job, first and foremost, and Manchester United fans will obviously complain bitterly and do complain bitterly about this, to uh, produce a profit at the end of every financial year for the owners. So he won't... Um, sign off on a player who uh, may cost fifty, sixty million pounds. Will be there until he retires on a salary of two fifty, or such like thousand uh, pounds a week, uh, just to assuage a manager who they're they're not very sure of. So again, it's, it's about this um, sort of you know contrast or or, or sort of you know, polar opposites of ambition between achieving success on the pitch and achieving success on the stock market. And at this moment in time, there's no doubt, and I think it's very evident, that the stock market and um, profits are more important to the people who run Manchester United than success on the pitches. Now, it will come to bite them. There's no doubt about that, because at some point the share price will fall because of a lack of success or because of non-Champions League qualification, something which hits them in the purse but not because they don't win the FA Cup or the Europa League or whatever, because Mourinho already did that and they still haven't invested in his advice. And instead, they're taking the advice on players of a guy whose background is accountancy and investment banking. And you know that is, unfortunately, uh, one of the things that modern football has been afflicted by. But, you know, there's some people who would say, well, what happened if you look at the 1970s, 1980s, you had guys who were local businessmen, one of whom actually was the chairman of Manchester United, um, who, you know, were actually ascribed to that cliche of the, the guy in the trench coat who decided which players to buy based on meetings in pubs and burn envelopes. So it's one of those things where you say, so as an investment banker any more um, qualified to do that than the guy who, you know, built his business up through a local butchery and um, then decides who, who to buy in terms of players. So it's one of those things. Who holds the power at football clubs in terms of actually who they sign, who they don't, is, is pretty random, Johnny. It's pretty random. And it's become more so, I think, in a club um, of United stature than a technical director or director of football would actually be a great help. And it certainly would, I think, assuage a lot of the fans' concerns about who's actually making decisions. Well, in that, that article I did for the record, they, um, we put a poll at the bottom asking whether Manchester United should appoint a director of football or not. And the response was 96% in favour, four against, which tells you what the fans are thinking. In terms of, in terms of Woodward's thinking, I think it's, it's important here um, to note that he does not like selling players who were bought under his watch. He wants to see those players succeed um, because it looks better for him. And that's why Luke Shaw is still at the club and, and has got a new contract. Um, and there are, you know, Marcus Rojo, um, Lindelof and Baye have all been signed under his watch. And then there's one other important factor, which is he um, was uh, instrumental in overhauling the scouting network at Manchester United and hiring, uh, putting in a process that had 50 new scouts appointed using a, a, a London consultancy company to identify them for the club and um, so he's put a big structure in there uh, probably the biggest structure of any English club maybe of any European club 
in terms of scouting. He spent a lot of money on it. And uh, therefore, he needs to demonstrate that it's of value. So he will listen to what his scouts tell him is the right thing to do in the market. And um, scouts then, and scouts' opinions and the lists they uh, produce for any given position become important and part, and part of the dynamic with Mourinho. Um, so Mourinho's presented with a list of centre-backs and has to fight to explain why certain centre-backs on that list from the scouts aren't suitable for, for his needs in the team. And who are the scouts working for? Well, they're sort of working for Mourinho, but ultimately they know that their paycheck is provided by the board, by the club, by the executive vice chairman. So when their ultimate loyalty comes down to it, their ultimate loyalty is going to be to uh, Ed Woodward, not to the manager, because managers come and go, executive vice chairmen rarely do. And a very short postscript to that, Johnny, is we should also note that um, a lot of scouting these days is done on computers and not in person. And that has a value. There's no doubt about it. Statistical analysis has improved in football. Software development in terms of player performance has developed in football. And every top club has their own method of both using analysts um, and uh, software with regards to making judgments on both the, the players they have currently at the club and players that they are thinking about bringing in. I think it's interesting that you get a two-week period like we've just had in terms of international break and Jose Mourinho is going out and watching players and games because he trusts his own instinct. He goes out and watches players that he is interested in saying because he wants to see them live and playing in a pressured environment so that he can decide whether or not they're for him. And I think one of the sort of great sort of, you know, debates, if you like, is about what's most important, a player's stats, or when a, a good coach or a great coach goes and watches them play and then sits down with them afterwards, looks in their eyes and thinks, yeah, you'll do for me. And I think that's one of the sort of, uh, that will become and is an ongoing debate in football in terms of how you judge a player. That's absolutely right, and it's very important that when I talked about the heavy uh, lifting that Mourinho's doing for himself in the transfer market, that's a great example of it. He doesn't trust um, Manchester United scouts to go and make judgments of players. He wants to see them live. should also note Manchester United have do spend money on sending their scouts to watch players live, unlike a lot of other clubs who are depending almost exclusively on, on, um, on data analysis and, and um, a good example of that, of the organisation of Manchester United, is a story from, from a year ago when um, they sent a scout to watch um, the Czech Republic play Iceland and uh, he'd done his homework so well that he didn't realise that the game was in Qatar and ended up in Reykjavik uh, uh, asking where, where that match, that friendly match. <laughs> One other Manchester United story that's been uh, all over the papers this week is that of Radamel Falcao and his move, his loan move from Monaco to United uh, a few years back. Now, this is part of these football leaks that have been coming out. And the issue is that there's been a £3.5 million ghost payment uh, between the two clubs. Initially, it was supposed to be for Manchester United's qualification for the Champions League, but unfortunately... French uh, league rules uh, disavow the the use of um, performance-related bonuses. So the agreement was made that this payment would be for a friendly between United and Monaco that didn't actually take place. Duncan, what's uh, your view on this? 
Yeah, I think um, it doesn't doesn't come as a great surprise to me um, because uh, United have a history of um, hiding in inverted commas payments um, since uh, Woodward took over as executive vice chairman, and that there's a number of transfer deals, particularly from that era, where they announced. Um, only the initial guaranteed fee, um, Angle Di Maria is a good example, um, either announced or briefed to the press on, on, the, um, on the, the initial fee only and ignored uh, the bonus payments, which generally in most of these deals were easily achieved or, as in the, the Falcon case, were, were almost um, guaranteed. So, it, and I, I presume that the reason United have gone down this route is they were slightly embarrassed by the the scale of fees they were they were spending. You know, Di Maria was a was a Premier League record at the time. Um, Falcon ten million euro loan fee um, with, um, if I remember correctly, it's uh, it was another fifty five million euros if they wanted to make the deal permanent at the end of that season, with the expectation that it would be made permanent. Were were very very substantial fees at the time. And, and in huge contrast to the the, kind, the uh, amounts of money that Sir Alex Ferguson and David Gill have been spending. So I, I presume it was a PR reason they were doing this. Um, we should say that I think Manchester United are relatively safe on this one because what they have done is abetted um, Monaco in breaking a Ligue 1 regulation, a French Ligue regulation, as opposed to um, breaking the rules of any governing body um, they were involved with. Uh, there is the potential, I suppose, if they were hiding payments from the tax authorities that they could be in trouble. But as reported um, by uh, Mediapart uh, this week, it looks as though the, um, the, the, the penalty and the wrongdoing uh, and the danger was essentially on Monaco's part. And, and it should be noted that the report discusses Monaco's legal strategy and that they, are, they, they felt that um, were they to be challenged by the French League on this, it would go to a legal case either in the French courts or in, in Monaco and that they would probably win that case. So, so they, were, they were taking the risk on themselves. But it's another example of, of rule breaking um, by English clubs. And I don't, again, I don't think it's the end of it. I think, um, I think these stories are going to come on a regular basis and we're going to learn more and more about the techniques used by uh, major clubs when um, shuffling huge amounts of money around uh, the European and, and global game. It's murky, isn't it, Ian? And that's the problem. Do, do fans even know the half of what goes on? Never mind the half. They don't know a quarter, Johnny, of what goes on, um, quite frankly. There's always a way around it and that's that's part of modern life. Uh, you know, you don't get investigations, and I'm talking about outside of football now, into tax avoidance, tax evasion, etc., etc., because there is no wrongdoing or, or attempts to somehow circumnavigate certain rules. I remember very specifically um, uh, about, I don't know, uh, 13, 14 years ago, and um, UEFA decided that it was exploitative for clubs to sign players who are under 21 up to contracts of more than five years. Um, but what you found then was that the biggest clubs in Europe, when they had a very special talent on their hands, 
um, that they would sign that player up to a contract of five years, but then do a, a, another private agreement, which is called heads of agreement in legal terms, where two parties agree to a particular contract. And it's um, breakable on both sides, but only with compensation paid to the one who breaks it. And so instead of um, uh, adhering to UEFA or FIFA rules in terms of the actual contract, they've done this contract for five years and then they would do a heads of agreement with the player and his and or his family for another extra two or three years, which would then be enforceable um, by this, you know, the, the, the threat of compensation having to be paid for breach of contract. So there is always a way around it. It's not always um, as major or, or mind sort of blowing as some of the revelations allegedly about um, FFP transgressions by Manchester City or Paris Saint-Germain in recent weeks. But as I said, it's, it's one of those things that... And fans... Do you know what? It's, here's something that I think is an interesting comparison. If you look at American sports and franchises, huge multi-billion dollar franchises like NFL and the NBA, they publish everything. It's all transparent. Every salary, every contract, every, um, in their case, compensation fee paid to another, another franchise for the transfer uh, of a contract um, for one of their players. They publish everything. And everyone knows what it is. Everyone knows exactly how much Tom Brady earns, you know, and, and, you know, we get all of this sort of nonsense about undisclosed fee for a transfer and, you know, everyone has to speculate or if you're really good at your job, you actually have contacts you can find out from either the agent or uh, a club administrator what the, the actual, not just the fee, but what the wages are and the contract and the bonuses are and everything else. But why do we have to go through that very painful and ridiculous kind of charade? when if we adopted the American uh, method of doing things, everyone would know exactly what's being paid to every player, what the transfer fee is and everything else, and make a decision for themselves based on common sense and the marketplace. So I, what I don't get, um, Johnny, is that, that you, as patrons and as um, people who care and are passionate about football, why is it that we're kept in the dark about football's finances? And a lot of this has, stuff has come out, both in the media part and Der Spiegel um, articles regarding FFP, but also recently with regards to um, the way the PFA, Professional Football Association, is run in England and um, the salaries being paid to people like Gordon Taylor, who's been chief executive for more than 30 years, compared to what's being paid into players' benefit funds or research into dementia, and mental health and addiction issues. That's become an issue. Obviously, there's been the scandal of sex abuse in clubs as well. And yet, all this time, there is an absolute massive gravy train of cash being poured into the game. And a lot of it, or certainly the vast majority of it, is not being either disclosed or even used or utilised to for the benefit of the game itself. So there, I think this whole issue of transparency is one which is going to become more and more important and more and more poignant, I think, in the coming weeks and months. And I do hope, I do hope that we will see um, some changes which will benefit not just the game itself, but at least for fans who can then see where 
look, obviously the, the television revenue is the biggest part of the the um, the revenue. However, fans still deserve to know where their money's being spent, and I would like that to see that happen as well. Just while we're on the subject, Duncan, we had La Liga president Javi Tebas uh, talking about PSG and Man City, calling for them to be banned if they've been found guilty of wrongdoing. Is this another step forward and an inevitable issue for those two clubs? I think it's it's important because you see um, a senior figure in European football making explicit um, the stance of his league um, and the clubs in his league. He will not be saying this without having consulted with the, the major clubs uh, in Spain, um, Atletico, Real Madrid, Barcelona. Um, that they expect um, the the scale of punishment for clubs who have seriously transgressed FFP rules to be exclusion from the Champions League for at least a year. Um, and I know that's been noted uh, in Switzerland by UEFA, um, and I know that um, that that external pressure from um, major participants in the Champions League. Uh, that the rules be properly applied is in their thinking when it comes to uh, pursuing an investigation against Manchester City, Paris Saint-Germain, other clubs, and there are multiple clubs here who who have um, who have transgressed FFP rules um, and acting upon it. And I can understand why Tebas is saying this because if you, I mean, if you do a little thought experiment here, if um, PSG and Manchester City when the scale of their um, attempts to uh, transgress rules that they'd agreed with the other participants on what's supposed to be you know, a level playing field or a set playing field, uh, the rules for the competition, FFP are part of the Champions League rules for the competition. So that's there. They agreed to them. The scale of the wrongdoing is now being exposed with um, lots of documentary evidence. If UEFA then say um, we're not, we're going to punish you, or even worse, we're not going to punish you for 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 that, but we're going to punish you, but it's not going to involve a Champions League ban. Um, where does FFP stand after that? Um, you know, the City and Paris Saint Germain have, have been uh, caught breaking the rules once. Um, they post that rule breaking period. They've gone on to. Uh, spent to have the most, the two most expensive squads in in uh, in football, according to uh, spending on uh, transfer fee commitments. If they're not going to get punished now, what's the point of having FFP? If there's no exclusion um, from the Champions League, if there's no serious uh, punishment for a fundamental break breach of the, the the Champions League rules, why should anyone bother adhering to it going forward? And I think that's why Tebas and others are putting the pressure on UEFA to act here because they 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 feel it's essential. And I, I saw an argument last week, um, and I saw uh, Manchester City fans getting quite excited by a report in Spain that suggested that UEFA felt it was um, it would be too damaging for the competition to exclude uh, Manchester City or PSG for a year. Um, I put that point to a UEFA official this week and he, he basically laughed and said, look, um, do you really think the Champions League would be fundamentally damaged by having these clubs out of it for one season? Um, we, you know, we regularly have 
uh, one or two of our major clubs um, failing to qualify for the Champions League and not taking part, getting knocked out in the group stages. The competition rolls on. Um, it's the most successful club tournament in the world. Its final is watched by more people than than um, the uh, the Super Bowl by you know, a factor of fifty percent. Um, that's you know that's not in our thinking. It's very interesting as well that the um, president of the European Clubs Association, Andrea Agnelli of Juventus, um, has come out in um, the same with the UEFA president as well to say that the possibility of a breakaway European Super League um, is, in quotes, a fiction, which our listeners um, will have um, basically heard us say that in the last two weeks as well. We... Um, we decided that this was a political positioning on behalf of Europe's elite clubs um, based on the lack of threat of um, there being uh, a penalty for transgressions of FFP in the cases of Manchester and Paris Saint-Germain. Uh, it's significant, I think, that um, ECA and UF have now joined and effectively the same statement saying that this is no longer or it's not an issue at all uh, because um, after lots of meetings and lots of lobbying they have um, I think secured a outline agreement in terms of the way that Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain will be pursued in terms of transgression of FFP rules. So it's it's one of those things where the, there, is a, there is definitely a Kind of, um, I think Johnny would call it a Fitzgeraldian old money type cabal, um, as he talks about in The Great Gatsby, um, <laughs> where the um, protected interests of those who have long been the most powerful organisations in any particular pecking order um, are keen to protect their interests going forward. And while they cannot necessarily compete with Paris Saint-Germain and Manchester City in terms of spending, what they can do is invoke and indeed wield their power in the corridors um, where it matters in terms of ensuring that um, rules that were agreed to by everyone should be upheld and, sh and, and the penalties should also be applied. Um, now, that also includes there being a restructure of UEFA competitions within the next five to six years. There'll be a third competition reintroduced, much like the old uh, European Cup Winners' Cup, um, much missed um, by no one except Rangers and Chelsea fans, um, I think. Aberdeen but... fans, come on! Oh, sorry, Aberdeen fans, Johnny, absolutely. In fact, yeah, you're right, actually. Yeah, you yeah, can't but... go two minutes without there, there, there's, there's a lot of nostalgia <laughs> about the European Cup Winners' Cup with regards to that, so fair play. Um, but there will be a, a third competition reintroduced within, I think, up to 2024 when the broadcast rights um, are renegotiated again for European club competitions. So what we're seeing is um, not a, a massive shift, if you like, in the, in the uh, power on the, the ground of European football, but a reassertion of the power of a lot of the elite clubs who are not state-sponsored um, as City and PSG are but would like to, it to remain at least, um, well, from the outside, competitive and not doped financially. 
So uh, you know, and that in itself is going to be you know very very interesting to follow. I think over um, in terms of the way that that develops with regards to changes both at UEFA um, and also the as I said the power that um, uh, the ECA um, exerts upon uh, UEFA in terms of FFP and its regulations. Okay, and now it's time for the legendary quickfire round. And in the spirit of Condoleezza Rice's incredible uh, move towards becoming a qualified American football coach, we are going to this week have two separate uh, quickfire round questions posed to the guys. So Ian is going to have a look at football managers who would make great politicians. And Duncan is going to look at great football jobs for politicians. It'll make sense once we start. It will, it will. Honestly, it does every week. I'm confident. Ian, we're going to start with you. Which job would Alex Ferguson get? It's a very easy one for me, Johnny. Which job would Sir Alex Ferguson not get? Let's face it. He is the greatest football coach uh, in history and someone who commands respect. He's even written his own book on leadership. For me... It's got to be President of the United States. You know, currently we've got a guy with an orange face in there, one of a guy with a red face. It's part of the stars, stripes, you know, the colour. Um, he'd do a much better job than the guy that's in there. I can't remember his name. Um, so for me, it's President Sir Alex Ferguson. Duncan, I need a football job for the Prime Minister, Theresa May. Well, Theresa May is uh, a politician who um, virtually no one supports. Um, Everyone wants to see out of their job. Almost everyone wants to see out of their job, but they don't actually want to see them out of their job at this current moment of time because it suits them to wait um, to uh, a little bit down the line uh, to get rid of her. So I think um, that's the perfect uh, description of the Manchester United job at present. So Theresa May in, Josie Mourinho out. <laughs> Ian, Pep Guardiola. Uh, listen, there's only one job for Pep these days. You know, the man who reinvented football, whose halo is unbreakable, um, who everyone loves and therefore would do what everyone else would love as well. And that's got to be Chancellor of the Exchequer. Austerity's over. Pep knows how to spend cash. Spend it. NHS, Pep. Spend it on education. Spend it on social services. Get yourself out there, son. Make yourself even more popular already. In fact, you could probably do both jobs at once. Duncan, I know a man that is very close to your own heart politically. Boris Johnson. Ah, Bojo. Um, well, he's a man uh, who uh, who's uh, never been short of a, of a bullshit uh, argument and position. Um, he's never been one uh, to fail to promise the promise the stars and and deliver um, some scrabbly earth. So I think that uh, that that is a good fit to Liverpool Football Club and. Um, and some of the actions of the, the current manager. So, great replacement for Jürgen, Boris Johnson. Duncan continues his popularity campaign on Merseyside. On to you, Ian, Jose Mourinho. Um, I think it's very important with Jose to consider his core skills and um, his core skill sets here, Johnny. Uh, multilingual, um, a great man-manager, someone who, you know, throughout his career has succeeded wherever he's gone. And also, someone who um, knows how to get the best out of an underperforming team. So for me, he's got to be Brexit secretary. This is a man who's you know he can go and speak all the languages to all the different people, make it right with everyone, 
if there's anyone going to get a deal for this country out of Brexit, it's going to be Jose Mourinho. So when he's finished at Manchester United, whenever that may be, whether it's like you know next week or 10 years from now, then the probably negotiations will still be going on. So for me, Jose for Brexit secretary. And you know what? Jose never resigns, unlike the last three. <laughs> Duncan, can you finish us off? Nigel Farage. Well, Nigel Farage, um, you're talking about a man with um, intriguing links to power and to money in Moscow. Um, someone who doesn't seem to be able to stay in a job for more than one and a half years, so it has to be Chelsea Football Club. <laughs> and with that quick fire round, I'm going to slam this particular transfer window shut. Just a reminder, we are looking for a sponsor, so if you do like the idea of partnering with one of the UK's best football podcasts and talking directly to our listeners about your brand, get in touch through our social media channels. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own Transfer Window official account at Transfer Podcast. We are trying to build a community on there, so everyone that follows will get a follow back. I'm Johnny R. McFarlane, at Johnny R. McFarlane, and most importantly, our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at GarboSG, so if you've got any questions or comments, you can deliver them there. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this helps us to reach as many listeners as possible. We'll be back next Tuesday before 4pm. Until next time, thanks for listening. Listener.